0: Welcome to Books and Nachos, a podcast for those of us who find excitement in the pages of a good book. At booksandnachos.com, you can find over 100 reviews, from fiction to nonfiction, graphic novels and more. There's also links to our forums, our Facebook and Twitter pages, and information about our Podbean crowdfunding campaigns. At booksandnachos.com, we're here to find you something great to read.
1: Welcome to Books and Nachos, the Venganza media podcast about everything in print. And welcome to Arrakis, the desert planet known to millions of readers as Dune. I'm your host, Stewart, in L.A., here planting my thumper in the sand in the hopes of catching some really big worms in the next six weeks. Today's podcast is devoted to that great shaihalad of science fiction literature, a science fiction landmark with over 12 million copies in print, winner of the Nebula, winner of the Hugo Prize for Best Sci-Fi Novel, Frank Herbert's Dune, which was first published in hardback in 1965, but appeared in serialized form throughout the early 1960s in Analog Magazine. It's a big story with big ideas and a lot of big funny words. I'm going to try to not make this too big a podcast. But this week it's Dune. Next week I move on to the sequel, Herbert's 1969 follow-up Dune Messiah. It's a smaller worm for sure, but still a challenge to climb aboard because of its bleaker tone. And in the weeks that follow, I'll tackle 1976's Children of Dune, 1981's God Emperor of Dune, 1984's Heretics of Dune, and finish up with Chapter House Dune, a book completed right before the author's untimely death from pancreatic cancer in 1986. That might sound like a lot of sandworms, but it's actually only scratching the surface of this dune Because Frank Herbert's son Brian took up the mantle in the new millennium, and has now overseen the publication of 13 additional Dune novels. Plus, there's a bounty of short stories, reference manuals, role-playing game modules, and all of the paraphernalia that comes with pop culture success. Board games, video games, toys, comic books, a Hollywood movie, two TV miniseries, you name it. I mean, we try to cover everything here at Books and Nachos, but at a certain point, I had to recognize this desert was just too vast. For the sake of time, maybe for the sake of my sanity, I'm going to limit my travels through Arrakis to just these six books that creator Frank Herbert is responsible for writing. Let me tell you, that workload is challenging enough. I honestly consider this franchise to be the most daunting series I've ever undertaken. It's hard to reduce all the intricacies that Herbert meticulously constructed about Religion and space travel and future human society into a succinct monologue that fans and newbies are going to enjoy. I mean, I could easily devote six podcasts just to the first book. It's that dense. You're looking at 10,000 years into the future of human history uh, to explore dozens of characters, all of whom speak into bizarre languages. They have this strange, distinct vernacular, and they're enmeshed in these complicated political power plays. The tone will careen from pulp adventure to heady philosophical musings, and, you know, there are surprises on every single one of the novel's 800 pages. The trek I made through Tolkien's Middle Earth felt like a cakewalk by comparison. And of course, part of that had to do with the fact that Hobbit-friendly co-host Jacob was with me back then to clarify language and lore for all those four fantasy classics. This time, I'm on my own. So, I'm more likely to survive drinking the water of life than getting through the next six shows without mispronouncing a word or confusing some important plot detail. So, let me be clear. What I hope to present here in these Dune podcasts are not academic or all-encompassing takes on the source material. If that's what you're looking for, I invite you to go enroll in a college class. Seriously, they teach entire semesters of Dune at university. So, all I can hope to offer listeners today in one show about Dune are general impressions. Citations of the things that stand out to me as a casual fan about what is unusual and compelling about Frank Herbert's Otherworldly Civilization. And if I do a good job of that, hopefully it inspires readers to pick up their own copy and then add their own voice to this ongoing conversation about a great book. And let me be clear about that as well. I'll let there be no mystery. I highly recommend the first Dune novel to everyone, even those who might not normally choose science fiction or fantasy for their reading pleasure. But, you know, I I don't feel like I'm alone in that. I mean, everyone knows they should read it. It's a bona fide classic. But I'm betting more than a few listeners today have been reticent that cracking the spine of that big book, making that commitment, you know, I get it. You know, I'm not going to lie to you. Dune is worthy of your time, but it's not going to be an easy read. But why should it be? I'm a firm believer that some of the most rewarding reading experiences you can have are when your ambition matches the research and the ambition of the author you've chosen to follow. And I do think Frank Herbert spent eight years on this and then made a whole industry out of it. The work is there on the page. I don't know if it helps or hurts my case by telling you that every edition I've ever seen of Dune does come with a 300 word glossary, as well as several maps and four appendices that are designed to help illuminate concepts that might be muddy when you're reading the story. Uh, That might sound like overkill. And in a certain way, you don't really need all of that other stuff. You don't need to know 300 words in order to translate what's going on here. I know when I see that kind of stuff, it usually makes me run in the other direction. And I get that. You know, you're worried that you're not going to understand. And here's the truth. In all likelihood, you won't. Not fully, not the first time through. This recording commemorates the third time that I've read Dune to completion. Uh, I was 13 years old when I first picked the book up, and I'll admit that back then, all I was looking for was an explanation for what the hell was going on in David Lynch's completely confounding film adaptation. Keep in mind, this was the 80s. There was no internet. There were no DVD commentary tracks. You had to go to the source material if you wanted to know anything about a movie, and so I picked that big book up and soon discovered that Herbert's prose was just as dense and puzzling as Lynch's film. There are so many characters and concepts thrown at you in just the first hundred pages. I was too young to really understand half of what I was reading, but I insisted on sticking it out. And I consider it a real point of pride when I finally closed the cover of Dune weeks later that I finished. Like main character Paul Atreides, I felt like I had passed a really difficult test and came out stronger for the experience. I wouldn't pick up Dune again until I was a sophomore in college, after taking a class with an English professor who was really big on underlining the ways that people in power control the masses. His reading list included Machiavelli's The Prince, Shakespeare's Richard III, and he really wanted to assign us Dune as well, but... We just ran out of time in the semester, so he opted for a much shorter Frank Herbert novel entitled The Santa Roga Barrier. And I like that book quite a bit. I found many similarities in its plot to Dune. Both of them are science fiction stories about an outsider who comes to an isolated community that is hooked on a mind-altering drug and people conspire to kill him. After the semester ended... I just felt inspired, I I went back and I reread Dune, and with the perspective of the class fresh in my head, I found myself much more in tune with the political aspects of the novel, all of the double crosses and the traitorous plots within plots that are sort of in the background, really, of the main storyline, which is about a young hero named Paul Atreides who's going to fulfill a destiny on this desert planet. The fact that the story happened on another planet now seemed incidental. I no longer was looking for this to be Star Wars with a strung-out Luke Skywalker. I saw it as a shrewd political allegory in which politicians survive by exploiting superstition and religious practices. And of course, I have read this novel just a few weeks ago again, Uh, in preparation both for this review at Books and Nachos, but also for a podcast released over at Sister Show, Now Playing, that is about the David Lynch movie adaptation. And so if you're curious about the film, Arnie, Jacob, and I, I think, had a very fun, detailed conversation about it, as well as the Sci-Fi Channel miniseries that aired back in the year 2000. Both podcasts are available right now, so... If you want to know what I think about them, go check them out. But this is Books and Nachos, where I always want it to be about the written word. That should be the focus. And yet, I admit it, I can't. Not fully. I'll confess it right off the top on all three occasions that I've read this book. I have never been able to get Kyle MacLachlan astride a giant sandworm or Kenneth McMillan covered in boils, cackling in a shower of black ooze out of my head. Say what you will about Lynch's take on the material, it left a lasting impression that I've been unable to shake. Now, maybe I would have more success reclaiming Herbert's words from this Lynchification if I tracked down the illustrated edition of Dune that was published back in 1978. It intersperses the text with 33 original black-and-white pencil sketches and 13 color paintings by artist John Schoenhar. And they give you a real full impression of all the Dune characters as the story unfolds. I googled it. I didn't read that edition. Mine had no art. But I wanted to see what it looked like. I wouldn't say that the drawings are definitive interpretations. I mean, Dune has had some great covers over the years. I've just really enjoyed looking at every edition of the artwork on that. And Schoenherr is maybe not my favorite, but he was the first person to visualize Arrakis. His drawings accompanied the Herbert words when they were first serialized in Analog Magazine. And he painted the 1965 first edition dust jacket of the hardcover, so he gets Frank Herbert's stamp of approval, and I think his style helped shape the way that most readers first experienced the dune before there ever was a movie. But whether your copy of Dune has pictures or not, one thing that I think is really going to stand out, at least it did for me this time when I read it, we're looking at a future in which mankind is thriving without the aid of computer technology. Think about that. You look at life on any of the four planets we spend time on in this first novel, planet Arrakis, Caladan, Gidi Prime, or Kitan, and you're never going to see people typing into a console, or being served by a robot, or operating complicated machinery, or even firing a laser gun. Nothing that other 20th century science fiction novels told us was our destiny happens here. Hell, you're not even going to see much metal you know, aside from a few spaceships, which don't come equipped with artificially intelligent navigators like Hal, Herbert writes in Dune's very first chapter that, quote, once men turned their thinking over to machines in the hopes that this would set them free, but that only permitted other men with machines to enslave them, end quote. It's like he was already anticipating our addiction to electronics before anyone in America had a personal computer. These days, I take it for granted that artificial intelligence is going to surpass human accomplishments. That no task would not benefit from having a calculator, a robotic apparatus, an iWatch, Fitbit, you name it. I mean, how are we going to turn the tables on the Terminator? Well, Doom has sketchy details on that. I couldn't find anything definitive in the narrative, but things get mentioned in passing. There was a great revolt, sometimes referred to as a butlerarian jihad, and humans won that fight. We not only beat Skynet, but we were able to continue advancing through the universe and establishing these fantastic dynastic kingdoms on every planet. This is an almost unimaginable Luddite fantasy for our hardwired age. When was the last time that you attended a party where nobody pulled out a cell phone? They made direct eye contact, they had the attention span that lasted for 30 seconds, and they could confidently prattle off dates and facts and details off the top of their heads without running and checking the internet. This is what normal life looks like in Dune. Sign me up. Glorious. Uh, This is a fantasy. I, I would love to live here. But if it's actually illegal to create a machine in the image of a man, and if we can't depend on C-3PO, how the heck are we getting to this next level? Because I know I can barely remember my four-digit PIN number. I do not know how I'm going to do complicated computations in my head, uh, how we can become those evolved people. Well, the answer is very 1965, uh, when Dune was first published. Drugs. Mind-altering, consciousness-expanding, highly addictive drugs. Uh, One specifically, I should state. Geriatric Spice, also known as Melange. Everything in Dune has two or three names, so get used to that. He'll switch it up. Spice, Melange, Geriatric Spice, Geriatric Spice, Melange. It's all the same thing. And basically, this is a future that Timothy Leary told us about when he was preaching about LSD. You know, he told hippies to turn on, tune in, and drop out. And Herbert gives us an idea of what that could look like. You do enough Spice Man, and you can unlock all of your brain's unused potential. You start to see the future. You can bend the cosmos and travel through space. Pregnant women can actually select the gender of their unborn baby. Your lifespan increases by decades, sometimes hundreds of years. And spice is organic, you know, it's not made in a lab, it's all natural, it's good for you, right? It's found only in the sands of the dune planet Arrakis. But it's distributed throughout the known universe in all kinds of forms. You can take it any way that you like it. If you don't like needles, don't worry, they even make it in candy. Because, you know, kids actually start consuming this stuff early. Hell, go to Arrakis and just breathe the air for a few minutes... And you're going to get a contact high. There's so much spice particulate floating around. So, you know, uh, there are side effects like any drug, I suppose. Heavy users are going to see the whites of their eyes turn super blue and their lips are probably going to get really, really red if, if they consume it orally. Do it enough and you will start to see mutation. You're going to stop looking human. Uh, The book doesn't go into details about what you will look like, but I'm guessing that there's somewhere on the package a Surgeon General's warning that uh, you should prepare for some body changes. And so then maybe we're just trading one unhealthy addiction for another, right? Maybe we're just saying no to robots and yes to mind-altering drugs and it's still going to enslave us. I mean... In the 1980s, when I was growing up, Nancy Reagan was telling us just to say no, and Max Hedrum was telling us to buy a Coke, and that seemed like the right thing. But, you know, a kid in the 1080s is more likely to be called down to the principal's office for a graphing calculator than for a dime bag. You know, it's just a role reversal. That said, schools of the future offer a much clearer path to a good-paying job than they do now thanks to melange the three major industries that i see when i read dune that have really sprung up around spice are much more stable than our current economy i mean first you do have blue collar jobs still you have miners there's uh, no robots to do all of that stuff these are folks that are actually going to go to arrakis and drill and pull spice out of the sand what that means is you're basically working for chome C H O A M. That acronym stands for Combine Hononet Ober Advancer Mercantalis. A real mouthful of nonsense, I know. <laughs> That's probably why they go by CHOME, but think of CHOME as the drug dealer of the Dune universe. They hook you up with all the spice you need, but you gotta be able to pay. And if you can't meet the price that they set, then your only other option is to go to the black market and hit up the smugglers. Uh, In this world, everyone needs spice to function. I'm shown absolutely no example of clean living here. You can't go without spice. So why not be one of the people that helps get it to the people? But if you're not interested in working for CHOM, maybe you're a kid that's always dreamed of being an astronaut, Maybe you should shoot for the Spacing Guild. These are the guys that have a monopoly on transporting cargo. Be it Spice or actually relocating people. If you want something moved across the universe, you talk to one of the Guild Navigators. Their FedEx and Uber all rolled into one. And Dune doesn't have too many details on how Spice gives them control over interstellar movement... Uh, We're told it involves some complicated mathematics. Already I'm turned off by that. But it's all taking place in secret. No one exactly sees a spacing guild navigator do the work that gets you to where you're going. But rumor has it that they're deformed. That you do enough spice like that and you really don't look like human anymore. Maybe you've grown wings and you fly there or a third eye or something. There is no picture of guild navigators even in the illustrated Dune edition so you just got to use your imagination here but I suppose if you're not vain and you want to see more of the universe this could be a good career path for you but barring these two options everyone else we meet in Dune is working in politics this is a future where every colonized planet is ruled by a dynastic house Dune planet Arrakis is ruled by House Harkonnen, although recently it's been decreed that they will now cede control of that house, that planet, is going to House Atreides. The person that makes those degrees is the Emperor, who rules over all of the houses. But the only way to sit on a throne is through bloodline. You're either born into it, or you marry into it. But... Assuming you don't have those connections, young boys anyway, uh, who start abusing Spice early, they have the potential to serve as counsel to this privileged ruling class. Because anyone who governs needs a mentat, uh, the human substitute for a computer. Mentats have been trained for extreme accomplishments in logic, and so they're usually great at identifying pitfalls that can occur when you create new policy. Or implement some new rule of law. All three houses we meet in Dune use Mintots for advice. Sadly, I'm not seeing a lot of options for women in this future. I saw no evidence that females are allowed into the Spacing Guild. Or that they work for Chome. Or that they ever get to actually make policy decisions on the throne. This is a patriarchal society. These are chauvinistic rulers. They like to marry women that help them politically, that further their house's standing in the universe. But they're not even going to be faithful to those brides. They keep concubines. And, you know, the only way females get the upper hand, it looks like to me anyway, is by studying with the Bene Gesserit. Uh, this is a sisterhood, women-only sect of Spice users who serve in a similar capacity to mintet sometimes. Uh, spice gives women the ability to read minds, and that's a valuable trick when you're conducting p- diplomacy, right? You'd like to know what the other guy is thinking. Well, that's why most men in power keep company with reverend mothers. These are highly trained Bene Gesserit ambassadors, uh, the emperor has one. Everyone either you know, marries one or keeps a concubine of one. And even if you don't go all the way and go full reverend mother, most women want at least a little Bene Gesserit training. You, know, you could call them witches, I suppose. A few characters in the story do. But I think of them more in the tradition of oracles from Greek myth, like Cassandra or the fates. I mean, women know what's going on more than men in dune society because they can not only see aspects of the future, but they control the bloodlines. Uh, These fearsome females, they know all the branches of the family tree, of all of these houses. And so they're usually the ones to make the matches. They make suggestions about who should marry who. And they're often even selecting the gender of that child. And... In that way, in a backhanded way, they are controlling who is sitting on a throne. It is the ultimate plan of the Bene Gesserit to see a male sired that will be genetically predisposed to have all of the talents of the universe, being that they will be a mentat, they will have that ability to think logically to a greater degree, they will be able to travel through the cosmos like the Spacing Guild and it can actually be in two places at once, and that they'll probably even end up being the emperor, that they'll rule over all of society. And why they want to create this is because they'll also have Bene at training, no man gets that. This is just a sisterhood thing. But this particular male will be trained in the Bene Gesserit way, and thus they will ultimately answer to the sisterhood. They will be under the control. The most powerful being in the universe will listen to women. And so they call this being the Kwisat Haderach, and the Main story of Dune is how such a person does come into power is forged in the deserts of planet Arrakis. And so our main character is going to be a potential Mentat, a possible Messiah, maybe a male Bene Gesserit, an emperor in training. His name is Paul. He is 15 years old. He is the son of Duke Leto, the popular leader of House Atreides. Paul's mother is a concubine named Lady Jessica, and she has angered her Bene Gesserit sisters by disobeying their order to produce a daughter that could have been married off to the Triades' mortal enemy, House Harkonnen. We will eventually find out that Jessica is Baron Harkonnen's daughter, and that if her child with Duke Leto had married the Baron's nephew, then at least according to the Bene Gesserit, it's their theory that that would produce an inbred that would have the powers of the fabled Quisette Hatterach. But Jessica did listen. She wanted to honor her husband. Duglado wanted a son. Maybe she was grossed out by the idea of inbreeding. I don't know. I think she had some ambition. I think that she believed deep down that she had the potential to sire this Quisette Hatterach. And so she chose to have a Paul instead of a Pauline because the Quisette Hatterach has to be a male. Now. Jessica is pregnant with a second child at the start of Dune, and that one is going to be a daughter, but it doesn't matter. The damage is already done in the eyes of the Bene Gesserit. Uh, They keep tabs on bloodline. Paul was something they never planned for. He has unknown genetic potential, and that threatens this sisterhood. So, Reverend Mother Gaius, who is the Emperor's truth-sayer, she's going to personally come to House Atreides at the start of Dune to administer a very important test. Let me just say, this opener is a real grabber. It's a great way, if you're nervous about getting over the hump of this big book, you're just really, it's going to hook you and you're just going to want to know more after you read this chapter. Because Paul is instructed to stick his hand inside a box that is going to cause him great physical pain. Paul will want to pull his hand out, but if he does, then the Reverend Mother will stick him with a poison needle and he's going to die instantly. Now, this test is meant to determine if Paul is an animal or a human. And I get the sense that the Bene Gesserit consider most folks, even royalty, they're animals. Animals act on instinct. If the pain is too great, an animal is going to do whatever it takes to avoid it, even if that means pulling out of the box and doing something that will knowingly kill them. But if Paul approaches this test with a supremely logical outlook... If he's able to rationalize away the pain, divorce his mind from his body, if he is a human being, he will survive unscathed. And I think this is one of the most fascinating ideas Frank Herbert puts forth in Dune. Not everyone who's walking around upright speaking English is going to be called a human being. There has to be something else, some essence not in our DNA that gives us the right to be called human an ephemeral quality uh, that allows you to master your body, you know, without reacting to stimulus. The word I'd give that is soul. You need a soul to be a human. You need a soul to be more than your physiology. Now, I know the Reverend Mother would never use such a religious term because the Bene Gesserit, they may look like scary nuns, but they do not identify as a religious order. They promote superstition in other cultures because that's their way of controlling people, but they do not accept mystical answers for things in the universe. Just because they can see the future or read minds, that's not a gift from God. That to them is science. It's chemistry. It's what happens when you do too much spice. And so while others may see Quizzet Haderach as some Divinity, a Jesus Christ, something otherworldly, to the Bene Gesserit, it's just a perfectly blended genetic cocktail. But I see it that Gaius is testing to see if Paul has a soul here in the beginning of Dune, and much to her surprise and consternation, Paul passes this test. And he's going to keep passing tests. You know, his superpowers are only going to increase once his family relocates to Arrakis and takes over the mining production of Spice. Um, He's going to be exposed to a lot of that melange, and it's just going to enhance everything. His visions of the future, his ability to speak in that mind-controlling voice that the Bene Gesserit use. He has greater logical reasoning, like a Mentat. He can look into the far reaches of space like the Guild. It's starting to look like, yeah, he's Kwisat Haderach. And I don't think I'm spoiling anything by just going ahead and saying, yes, by the end of it, he is going to declare himself that. The story of Dune is really the story of him triumphing over the numerous additional tests to his body and to his soul. First, his father gets killed, and he and his mother are cast out of their new posh Arakin palace in a coup, masterminded by both House Harkonnen and the Emperor. Paul and Jessica must then battle the harsh elements of the southern deserts of Arrakis, where high-powered winds can strip a body clean of flesh in seconds, and giant worms burst forth from deep below the sand to devour any creature they detect moving on the surface. They must make friends with the Fremen, savage indigenous people of the planet who live in small tribes scattered throughout caves, all over the planet. Primitives who believe Paul is a messiah, in part because long ago the Bene Jesuit promised the Fremen a messiah would come to them. And using that myth, Paul unifies these warriors, along with incorporating a few spice pirates, and forms an army that he can come back and kick Harkonnen ass in the climax. Uh, this is the part of Dune that feels very much in keeping with great Pulp science fiction novels. You know, the stuff of Edgar Rice Burroughs, early bestsellers of the genre, Tarzan. Civilized man goes native, learns their ways, comes back victorious over his enemies, gets the girl, saves the universe. This is the part of Dune that always tricks Hollywood into thinking it would make a great action movie. But it's more complicated than that. I mean, I know there have been great movies about that, Lawrence Arabia, that was playing at the time that Frank Herbert wrote this, it was about T.E. Lawrence, a brash young British officer who galvanized warring tribes of Arabia to defeat Turks in World War I. I think that had a huge influence on the way that Frank wrote Paul. But this is more than a young male empowerment lesson. I mean, to see it as such is to ignore layers upon layers of very interesting subtexts some of which I can get into and some of which you will discover on your own. But I definitely want to advocate if Herbert were just trying to write a redux of John Carpenter of Mars, he would have not needed to work this hard. He would have not written so many pages. He would have not created so many characters. He would not have included so many details and lore. The truth is that Herbert wanted to craft a novel where each time the reader went back and read it, They could focus on something entirely different and get a new message. Dune is most easily understood as a hero's journey, but it can also be seen through the lens of ecology, religion, and world history. Paul wasn't even originally intended to be the main character of Dune. Frank Herbert, when he started this story, placed at the center Leot Keynes, an ecologist who ends up in a very peripheral part of Dune. He lives and works on Arrakis at the behest of the emperor, but secretly is helping the Fremen turn the soil and plant life of the desert so that people may eventually live on the surface without need of their special still suits. If they follow Kind's observations, then it'll take about 300 years, which is within Fremen lifespan. You, if you take enough spice, you can do that. Arrakis natives will eventually be able to collect enough water to turn sand dunes green again, which is apparently how the planet was long ago before there was even sandworms. Now, this idea came to Herbert because he was a reporter in Oregon who was following the Department of Agriculture's efforts to introduce beach grass into the coastal ecosystem. What was happening was basically the sand was just aggressively blowing past the beaches. It was uh, consuming farmland, valuable real estate. They didn't know how to control it, so they were trying to introduce plants that would just slow its growth. And I think that notion totally frightened Frank Herbert, the idea that a desert could swallow civilization if left unchecked. I think that he wanted to tell a story in which an ecologist saves the day, that that was happening I think originally he planned it for Mars, but then on his planet Arrakis. If we want that to end, we must listen to a scientist. Ultimately, there isn't that much of the character kinds left in the finished Dune manuscript. The Harkonnens eventually capture the scientist during their overthrow siege of the House Atreides. And as an ironic joke, they kind of toss him into the desert so that he can die by the elemental forces of the planet he so dearly loved. Ha 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 ha. He wanted to change the planet and, you know, he basically burned in the sun. You can find more of his backstory in an appendix, you know, in the back after the narrative ends. There are some interstitial materials that will kind of tell you about his father and how he came to befriend the Fremen. And Paul does eventually marry, well, at least fall in love with Kine's Freeman daughter, Chani. Who cares about in-laws, right? I mean, if this were just a hero's journey, you wouldn't pay attention to any of that. You'd see this all as a distraction and maybe rightfully Kinds is minimalized. But he is here throughout the story. His influence is here. If you train your brain to look, there are ecological messages scattered throughout the story, usually punctuated with his name. And I actually think that's how Dune wound up being a bestseller. You know, it came out in 1965 and sci-fi geeks loved it, but it wasn't like an instant hit. Herbert wasn't making money off of it until hippies really discovered it in the late 60s, early 70s. It sort of intertwined with their passion for the environmental movement, which was just getting started. The book was pushed on people wanting to take a deeper look at conservation and climate change, and green activists really came to celebrate the way that this sci-fi story found a parallel between spice addiction in some future planet and 20th century Earth's dependence on oil. What we eventually learn is that there is spice because there are worms, or shai halud, as the freemen call them. And much like the way that dinosaurs died and gave us petroleum, uh, worms die a natural death and create spice. So you have to kind of protect them. You can't kill off all the worms or you end up stopping spice flow. If you want the drug of the universe to keep flowing, you must treat Arrakis better than the way House Harkonnen subjugates it. And so that when Paul comes back to reclaim the throne, he does so with Kind's teachings and his daughter with him. And I think another subplot of Doom that resonated with the 70s generation in the wake of Vietnam and Watergate was its interest in political discourse. You know, people were really jaded. And maybe on the surface, this didn't seem like the right touchstone for speaking to that cynicism. But keep in mind, Frank Herbert also spent a good deal of time in Washington, D.C., Writing speeches for a Republican congressmen. And it led to him being present for a whole lot of firsthand experience with backroom backbiting and betrayals. He wanted to get that in this book. He wanted this to be a thorough, accurate analysis of governance and why it oftentimes doesn't work when too many cooks get involved. So the first 200 pages of Dune really asked readers to take a look at all of the mentors and confidants that surround Paul and his father. And really, you know, one of them is going to end up being a Harkonnen spy who will betray him. We're asked to try and guess who that's going to be. It's a lot of red herrings. Not all of it pays out. I do feel like there's some characters that I learn very little about. But I am glad to have the time to marinate in these conspiracies. I think my college professor was right. Dune has as much to say about abuse of power as Machiavelli's The Prince. And Herbert really had his finger on the pulse of our changing times. You know, JFK was assassinated a month after the chapter in which Duke Leto was killed was published in a magazine. It was serialized before it was in a book. And that timing is just amazing. I mean, I have to believe that that real-life tragedy in some way paved the way for the 60s and 70s kids to really look at this sci-fi story and see that it was about them and their jaded look at government. And sadly, I don't think that times are that much different today. I see a lot of animosity when I look on Facebook, when I look at political discourse. Dune is still relevant. It is still chilling. It is still thrilling and I highly recommend it to everyone. You should really give it a shot even if you're scared by all of its ambitions. Let that roll past you, take what you can, leave the rest. It will reward you in whatever level you meet it on. But one question remains, even now that I have read this book three times. Does Paul become a messiah to the people of Arrakis and save them? Or did he just get suckered by a Bene Gesserit myth? When I was 13 years old, that thought never occurred to me. I mean, of course, it was just Jesus Christ, some do-gooder that was going to save the universe. And it was a happy ending that he came to the throne at the very end. But, you know, after my conspiratorial Literature College course, I had more cynical presumptions that maybe Paul just fell for his own hype, that you can just... Fake it until you make it, and you don't actually have to be a messiah in order to become one. Now that I'm middle-aged, and I tend to see much of today's world in shades of gray rather than clear black and white, I just don't know. I don't think you can conclude just by reading that book. So I think that's why we must continue on. Dune Messiah was published four years after the hardcover edition of Dune, and it picks up 12 years into the reign of Paul Moadib. The mysteries of who he has become, and if that that Kwisatz Haderach is an agent for good or evil, I think is going to become much clearer when you join me next week, and I hope you do. I really look forward to looking back into Frank Herbert's mind, reading his thoughts, seeing what he's got planned, and uh, I hope you can join me for the next five weeks. I know this was a very abridged, but hopefully a, a fun and informative look back at a book that I believe deserves every bit of its high reputation. So, again, this is Stuart in L.A. Thanks for joining me. Keep reading, and I'll talk to you soon.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of Books and Nachos, You can also find many more book reviews at our website, booksandnachos.com. If you enjoyed this podcast, please help spread the word about our podcast by leaving us a five-star review on iTunes. Books and Nachos is a crowdsourced podcast with no sponsors or ads. You can support our show by pledging to our Podbean campaign at booksandnachos.com slash support. The music for Books and Nachos is The Right Prescription by Chai Weapon, provided by PodSafeAudio.com. Books and Nachos is a Vinganza Media production, copyright 2016, all rights reserved. And no part of the show may be reproduced, repurposed, or redistributed without the written permission of Vinganza Media Incorporated.